Let's begin with a true-false today as we prepare to open God's Word and learn and worship through learning. True or false, agree, disagree, all those who believe the gospel and become Christians have been appointed by God to believe the gospel and become Christians. I hear some true. I hear some silent falses, perhaps. I've been alive long enough and asked enough Christians the question to anticipate. Some of you might think that's true and you came to the right place. And some of you might think that's not true, that all who believe in our Christians believe in our Christians because they've been appointed by God to believe and become Christians. And if you think that's false, you're also in the right place um, because we're going to see what the Bible actually says about that. And that means we're going to be in the 13th chapter of the book we call the book of Acts. And we're going to look at Acts 13:48, where we find out if that's true or not true. I've met lots of pastors who think it's not true. I've met lots of pastors who think it's true. I've met lots of Christians who think it's true and lots of Christians who think it's not true. I want you to know that the way you answer that question is actually really important. It will affect the way you function as a church. It will affect the way you do gospel ministry as, in, as an individual. It will affect your bravery. It will affect your evangelistic methods. It will affect whether or not you do salesperson techniques to convert people. And on the list goes. So what does it say in Acts 13, 48? So practical because theology is practical. How God works and how the gospel works is really important for us right here today. And Acts 13, 48 says, when, And when the Gentiles heard this, the truth about Jesus, the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. Aha, there is the verse that helps answer the question. Lots of you have heard this before, but lots of you haven't. I will never forget going with my dear friend Todd Swift, who's an elder here. We graduated from the same seminary. Rumor has it he did a bicycle race yesterday, 75 miles, but I digress. Pretty good for an older guy. (laughs) We're in Siberia, and we're teaching pastors in training, and we knew where they were coming from theologically, and we were asked to teach a certain subject about evangelism and how the gospel works. And I remember, I think it was probably day two, riding on the board, on the dry erase board, all those who've been appointed unto eternal life will believe. And we said, true or false? And like bad students, they started talking amongst themselves. (laughs) You don't do that for a quiz or a test. And then finally, someone was the spokesman for the class, and they said, how do you want us to answer? (laughs) And we knew that they knew, because they knew their Bibles well, they knew that that, in, in essence, is what Acts 13, 48 says. But they were in such an environment where Arminianism was so strong that if they said it's true, they wouldn't be allowed to be pastors in their denomination. It's a controversial topic. It's hugely controversial by Bible believers. But I want you to know that it might make, while it might make us uncomfortable, 
It shouldn't be controversial. It's right there in the text. And what we're going to do today is see it in its natural habitat in chapter 13. And it's so good to see it in its natural habitat because you can see now what would help boldness in proclamation. What would help cause those who are preaching the gospel to not compromise, to not doctor it up or water it down or trim off the harsh edges or anything like that. You just preach the truth. Yes, with boldness. Yes, with compassion. Yes, with passion. But you preach the truth and you leave the results to God. We don't have to play little sovereigns. We don't have to play manipulators. Yes, God uses the proclamation of His Word to draw those who've been appointed unto eternal life. Absolutely, that's Romans 10. But this so affects our gospel ministry for good. I just heard a pastor within the last couple of weeks basically say, I don't believe these things. And I thought it shows in your evangelistic manipulation. And now our converts aren't our converts, or excuse me, they're our converts. It's no wonder they so oftentimes don't stick. So I want you so badly to see this great gospel text of proclamation and what's driving the boldness and the stick to of it, the faithfulness to the gospel that could help us as a church, help us as Christians, help you if you're a pastor listening. To be faithful is to know that God is sovereign. And God draws, and it is true that some have been appointed unto eternal life. We don't know who they are till they believe, so we preach to everybody. But man, this matters. It matters a whole lot to us. 52 verses. I've had at least two strong cups of coffee. I've prayed. I'm well-rested and... Nutrient eyes. I, I, I need this made up word. I, I'm ready to go and I hope you are too. I hope you got a good seat. I hope you're motivated for this because you don't need an outline for 52 verses of Acts 13 because it just is interesting and exciting and moving forward. In chapter 13 of Acts, we have a shift. We've been focusing primarily, not entirely, but primarily on the gospel preaching ministry of the, under the leadership of who? The apostle Peter. Not entirely, but he's been the key figure, if you will, as far as leaders go. And now the shift happens, and now we have the Apostle Paul. Again, we're going to see Peter again, but the focus is now on the Apostle Paul shifting to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. And he's going to begin what we call his missionary journeys. And it's anything but boring. So if this is boring, it's because I made it boring or you're boring. Okay, so let's just, let's just get after it and see how the gospel proclamation works. This is called, I would call this evangelism 101. And maybe I'll just make one more comment about that, I promise. I'll, I'll, I'll get started. 52 verses? Are you kidding me? This is evangelism 101 to the biblically literate. They're preaching to people who believe the Bible is true and they know a lot about what it says. So that's important for us because I talk to, I preach to a lot of biblically literate people. I hope. <laughs> I hope you meet that qualification. Biblically literate people, they believe, they know the Bible. So they're, they're preaching to those folks. Later, like in Acts 17, it's evangelism 101 to the biblically illiterate. They don't know the Bible. Same gospel for sure, but maybe with a little bit different um, kind of angle, if you will. So evangelism 101 to the biblically literate. Let's jump in now. Verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch. 
prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manane, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So the church at Antioch makes me smile. The church at Antioch, because we learned in chapter 11, Antioch is like Las Vegas in the ancient world, okay? It's it's known for its paganism. It's known for its uh, immorality. It's known for it's a dubious kind of place. Rome didn't even really know what to do with Antioch. Third most significant city in the Roman Empire, and it's pagan, it's corrupt, it's what happens in Antioch stays in Antioch kind of thing. It's got a bad reputation even by unbelievers, and what happens, the gospel goes there, and all kinds of people become Christians. The church at Antioch. It's, it's only God does such interesting and strange, holy things. Uh, what's not to like about that? The church at Antioch. Also, I think it's interesting because of the people named here who were involved uh, in some kind of leadership in the church of Antioch, enough to be named. So we have someone from Africa. We have someone from Cyprus. We have someone from Palestine. We have someone from Asia Minor. And so it's a mixed group involved in leading this church at Antioch, which I think is is good to see. Verse 2 says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, presumably through a prophet or prophets, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So interestingly enough, the Spirit's already called them to this. Now they're to recognize it and they're to set them apart. And this happens while they're worshiping and fasting. We're going to see in a moment, it's while they were praying as well. If we were to look at other passages ever so quickly, we won't take the time to do it. But what oftentimes happens is when you don't know what to do, and it's a big decision to be made, you pray. And sometimes in the Bible, that also is coupled with fasting. This isn't mandatory Old Covenant fasting. It's just what they're doing. Uh, Reading between the lines, which is dangerous, but I'm going to do so, I think, uh, with reason. They're wondering what to do next. All of these people have been converted here. This is absolutely amazing. They've come to believe the truth about Jesus, new creations in Christ, adopted into his family, all of the blessings and benefits of being united to Christ. This is wonderful. So we praise you, God. We're grateful for this. This is amazing. But it seems like at this point in time, reading between the lines, it's now what? I mean, the gospel came here. And what what would you have us to do next? What's the next strategic thing that we should do? Because something special and important is happening here. That seems to be what's happening. So they're not eating. They're focusing on praying. They're focusing on worshiping God because they want to know what to do next. And God leads them and guides them uniquely supernaturally to send out Barnabas and Paul, I like the emphasis that Luke is bringing up on dependence on the Spirit. They're praying. They don't know what to do. They need God's help. And the Spirit provides through probably the prophets. Three says, then after fasting and praying, they they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So maybe two things to notice ever so quickly. Uh, it's official. They want everybody to see in the congregation. We're doing this together as a church. We're sending them. We're laying hands on them to show symbolically that we're with them. We're together with them. This is something that we're going to do here. Do notice too, it's tied to the church already. So this isn't just an independent kind of thing. It's already tied there. I would also point out to you the fact that we already know something about Barnabas and Paul or Saul. And that's that this is in their wheelhouse. 
I mean, these guys weren't people who weren't gifted. These weren't people who were just sitting around doing nothing. And all of a sudden, in some kind of a weird mystical sense, uh, let's send these guys to preach, even though they can't say they're ABCs. And even though they don't know the Bible very well, the Holy Spirit told us. Actually, they have a track record of being clear and bold and good at teaching. And so it's actually supernatural, yes, Holy Spirit-led, yes, and also reasonable. It makes sense that you would do this, that you would send these two. So they're going to do that. With me so far? Do I need to have more energy? Maybe. Verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, that's interesting because they weren't sent out by the Holy Spirit. They were sent out by the church. Didn't we just read that? Oh, I love, I love the solidarity. I love the interchangeableness of how he words that. Yes, the church is doing it, but you know what? They were praying and fasting and waiting upon the Lord, and the Lord guided and led and direct. And you know what? When the church sends them out, in this case, you can say the Holy Spirit sends them out. This is God-ordained, in other words. Even though, just before this, it said it was human beings. I love it. I absolutely love it. What confidence they could have that this is God's will. This is what God wants. Being sent out by the church. Being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Yes and yes. They went down to Seleucia. Just down from Antioch. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. Some 60 miles. When they arrived at Salamis. East coast of Cyprus. They proclaimed the word of God. Of course they did. Because that's what they were sent to do. And I want to remind you that oftentimes uh, that, that we're seeing synonyms in the book of Acts. I've said this many times. I'll keep saying it again. The word of God, the revelation of God, the revelation of God focused on the centerpiece of God's revelation, who is none other than Christ. It's a synonym for the truth about the Bible focused primarily, first and foremost, because he's the ultimate revelation of God on the gospel. So they didn't just show up doing random Bible surveys about nothing. It's not it. It's synonymous with the, the revelation of God about Christ. They're gospel preachers. They proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John, that would be John Mark, who we already met, to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos. So the west end now of town, if you will, Roman capital of the province, Paphos, they came upon a certain magician. Hmm. Interesting. A Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, meaning son of Jesus. How ironic. They're preaching Jesus, and they meet a false prophet named son of Jesus, or son of Joshua, son of Yeshua, son of God. So they meet this Bar-Jesus. He was with, look at verse 7, he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Tell me more. I want to know more from you. Verse 8 says, But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. See, synonyms. Well, it's to turn them away from the word of God. Well, that's another way of saying the faith. And we're talking about the Christian faith. The truth about who Jesus is and what he accomplished and what he teaches. So this guy, this Jesus guy, son of Jesus guy, is actually anti-Jesus guy. Uh, he's anti-Christ guy because he's against the faith. 
9 says, but Saul, who was also, notice, also not now, also called Paul. So he has a Jewish name. It's Saul. He has a Latin name or Roman name. It's Paul. Lots of Bible interpreters get this one wrong and say he used to be Saul and now he's Paul. Well, I've made lots of mistakes myself, so give people a break. Um, but you did hear it here and you need to see it in the text. Um, he, for till his dying day, his name was Saul. And from the very beginning, his name was Paul. And that's not a contradiction. The focus now, though, is going to be on the Gentiles, on the Romans, if you will. So we know him now being called by that name. Doesn't really matter a whole lot, but if I had 50 cents for every time I hear someone make this profound point. Okay, I digress. <laughs> it's the same guy. Okay. But Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, I, I, controlled by the Holy Spirit. So what do you do when you're controlled by the Holy Spirit supernaturally and there's someone who's trying to get people to not believe the gospel? If you're Holy Spirit controlled, you call them names. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil. Holy Spirit controlled. You son of the devil, no son of Jesus, that's for sure. You enemy of all righteousness. He's going to call him several things. I'm going to ask you which one you like the best. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Which is another way of saying what? In the ancient world, straight paths are safe paths. Okay, they, they don't have dangerous curves where there might be bandits hiding out or robbers or something. Uh, when royalty comes, you want to make the path straight and welcoming and safe. And you know what? The safe and only way to being right with God is on the straight path, right? It's by faith in Jesus. This Roman official can, can be on the safe path to eternal life. By believing in Jesus, but this bar Jesus wants to pervert it and make it complicated and anything but safe. Which, 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 which bad label, Holy Spirit inspired, did you like best? Okay. I don't think we'll take a vote, but I, I, they're, they're all good. Maybe I should say, it is interesting. The apostles, Jesus, other believers that we see recorded in Scripture, it's not typical for them to lambast unbelievers. It's the false teachers. Okay, so different different kind of tact. But when it comes to false teachers, they, they, they tend to take the gloves off. And that's happening here. I think maybe my favorite was the enemy of all righteousness. We can still be friends if you picked a different favorite. The enemy of all righteousness. I like that one because by contrary um, point, Jesus in Matthew 3.15 came to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus kept God's standard perfectly. He obeyed all of the requirements perfectly. He fulfilled all righteousness. And here the 
faker son of Jesus, bar Jesus, is the enemy of all righteousness. People need to know that they need righteousness. And Jesus provides the righteousness. And this guy's the enemy of righteousness. He would have said, you know what? You can do it on your own. You could be righteous. As long as you're good outweighs your bad. Maybe 90%. Or something like that. He's a enemy of all righteousness because the only righteousness that is acceptable before God is Christ's perfect righteousness. It's found in Him. Verse 11 then says, And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. I kind of like that one out of context. You know, that's like a out of context verse you'd put on a plaque of somebody in their own office. Behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. Oh, I, be blessed. I feel blessed. <laughs> I say it that way because sometimes the Bible says the hand of the Lord is upon someone and it's for blessing, right? Oh, Paul says, yeah, the hand of the Lord's on you, all right. <laughs> the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. It's judgment for you, buddy. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. How's, how, how's, how's that magic trick? How's your magic working out for you? Mr. I claim to be one who can do supernatural things. Devastated. Silenced. Oh, I wish we had apostolic power sometimes today. But I'd probably be dead, but I don't know. Verse 12 says, Then the proconsul, here's the good side, Then the proconsul believed. He trusted. He came to faith. Those are all synonymous. The proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teachings of the Lord, which is also super cool when it comes to solidarity and togetherness, because he hadn't just heard the Lord. He just heard the apostles preaching the truth about the Lord. And now Luke calls it the word of the Lord. Because when, again, you don't try to doctor up the message and you don't try to trim off the edges and all of that sort of stuff and you preach the truth about Christ, God is using you to preach the truth about Christ. And here Luke calls it the Lord. The Lord's not even there. Oh, but he is by the power of the Spirit through his faithful proclaimers. I love that. And he's astonished. Luke doesn't record what in particular he's astonished by. But what would he be astonished by? I could be forgiven? That I could have perfect righteousness credited to my account by faith? That I could have assurance like Romans 8 would talk about? I'm reading between the lines here, obviously. I could be adopted into the family based upon no merits of my own? That, that I could be guaranteed eternal life? This is astonishing. This is absolutely astonishing. That God's not my enemy anymore? That God is for me? This is astonishing. And I trust in that Savior. That's what's happening here. This is wonderful. Okay, we're going to move on and transition now to verse 13. Now Paul and his companions, companions, and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, modern Turkey. People tell us it's 188 miles by boat. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Maybe more about that a different day. 14. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch. I thought they were in Antioch. I thought we already saw Antioch. Antioch in Pisidia, also in Turkey. 
He has to say Antioch and Pisidia. I, I didn't know this before, I, or if I knew it before, I forgot it. He has to designate because in the ancient world there were 16 Antiochs. So, uh, interesting, huh? They liked Antioch. So, uh, this is not just another Antioch. It's Antioch in Pisidia. Then it says, And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Can you imagine? Right? Oh, we have some Jewish visitors here. Um, and, and so we're going to ask them if they want to, maybe because of the way they're dressed, maybe because of reputation. Um, but for whatever reason, you know what? They're, they're not just ordinary Jews. They're people who know some things about some things and some stuff about some stuff. God's providence. They're, they're going to get a talk. Now for the message. This is worth a lightning bolt if you're taking notes. 16. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel and you who fear God. So Jews and those who have come to believe in Yahweh, the one true and living God, uh, Gentile proselytes, we might call them. They, they do believe in the one true God. Listen, and it's, this is going to get really good about God's sovereignty and what he's going to do as he preaches this message. He's going to talk about the sovereignty of God, that he's the king who's in control of all things, including human history. And not only that, he's the God of revelation. Not only that, he's the God of salvation. And he's been unfolding this great drama of redemption, of being set free throughout history. And it's extraordinary and amazing, sovereign grace, because God hasn't been giving the Jewish people, what they deserve. Oh no, he's going to emphasize that sovereign grace. And it all culminates not out of left field, not in some kind of rogue way, but on purpose, it culminates in and through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he says, all right, sit down, get a comfortable chair. We're going to do a Bible study here. And I'm going to tell you how the whole Bible works. Pretty cool. Not deviation to get to Christ, but intentionality and fulfillment. 17 says, the God of this people, Israel. Oh, they like to hear that. God is of, of us. Chose our fathers. Genesis 12 to 50. I mean, uh, to, let's quick read it. <laughs> he, cho- he chose our fathers. And they're, they're going to like that part too. And made the people great. Oh, that, that's encouraging if you're Jewish. During their stay in the land of Egypt. So that's during exile. That's sovereignty, isn't it? While they're in exile, he made them great. That's not how I would do it. But that's how God did it. He, he made them great while they were enslaved. While they were in exile. While they were in the land of Egypt. And uplift an uplifted arm. And with uplifted arm, if you will. His power, symbolically. He led them out of it. Which is redemption talk. We tend to think of redemption in Christ, and that's the right way to think. But there were already pictures of redemption. You're set free from enslavement because a price has been paid is kind of the image. And remember, God, we're seeing here, God has been a redeeming God for a long time. And it hasn't been because you Israelites were good. And it hasn't been the way you would have planned it because you wouldn't have, plan, you wouldn't have planned the exile. Sovereign grace, 18, and for about 40 years... He put up with them. I don't like that part so much. 
You can insult me, but don't say bad things about my dad. My heritage. For about 40 years, but it's undeniable. It's in the scriptures. They know it. For, for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And so, so if he's putting up with them, that's showing mercy. That's showing grace. That's right. It's not because they deserve this. Good things. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, defeating enemies, they don't deserve that, but it happened. God did it. He gave grace. He gave them their land as an inheritance. That's sovereign grace that he did that. Verse 20, all this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges. Time where they're characterized by disobedience until Samuel, the prophet 21 then says, then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he, ah, sovereignty, he, God, had removed him. He, God, raised up David to be their king. Sovereign, he removed and he raised up. Of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. This is an interesting sermon that Paul's preaching to them. They're biblically literate. He's not telling them things they don't know, but oh, how we forget things. And we read things in our best light sometimes and we become prideful and confused and all sorts of things and have bad theology and we don't believe in Jesus then and therefore... And what he's going to do now, he's going to connect the dots from David. Oh, and if they're the Jews, they like David. And you know what the Bible does say? He's a man after God's own heart. And there's this thing called the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel where David is promised to have a throne, to be a savior and to rule and reign forever. David. It's no wonder we put him on the flannel graphs every week in Shabbat school. We don't have flannel graphs anymore, so I'm really dating myself. He's a hero. Like Abraham, he's a hero. And then David's a hero. And you know what? David, he is a man after God's own heart. He was the best of the worst. <laughs> Out of everyone, he's the best. But when we look at the Davidic covenant, he's a sinner too. And he died. And so he can't rule and reign forever. There's got to be a greater David. Even though David is great, if you make David your end game, you're confused about what even the Old Testament teaches. They're confused. Second Samuel chapter 7 verse 12 says, When your days are fulfilled, this is a, a Davidic covenant. And see, if you're, if you're a Jew, what are you waiting for? Deliverance, salvation, a king who won't oppress you, a king who will rule and reign and fight your enemies and keep you safe and provide for you. And David was the best of the worst, but there had to be somebody better. But you're longing for this eternal kingdom is what you're longing for. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, David's going to die, even in the Davidic covenant, I will raise up your offspring after you. Oh, it's going to be Solomon because he's perfect. No, let's be more biblically literate than that. Who shall come from your body? Oh, and I will establish his kingdom. It's got to be somebody in the line of David. It's not going to be Solomon because he's going to die too. 
Second Samuel 7.13, he shall build a house for my name. Think dynasty. Think kingdom. Don't think house that you live in. And I will establish the throne of his dynasty. I will establish the throne of his kingdom. This is Second Samuel 7.13. Important word, forever. Jesus is the ultimate David. He is the only one who is without sin and therefore can conquer death. He must be raised and he will rule and reign forever because he has eternal life in and of himself. This is good. Now, Paul didn't stop to unpack all of that, but I want to unpack it for you a little bit. He's drawing them in. David is a great guy. He's assuming they know a little bit more about David, though. It's got to be someone else. Okay. Point being, takeaway, the Davidic covenant can only be fulfilled by Jesus. Peter preached the same kind of way at the beginning of the book of Acts. It's the no-brainer. And you might be here today and think, Davidic covenant, why would I care about that? Actually, we do care because we want a perfect king who provides perfectly, protects perfectly from our enemies, is gracious, not manipulative, not underhanded. We want a perfect king who will rule and reign forever, who can have us as his loyal subjects. And we too can live forever under his dominion. You might not know that that's what you want, but it is what you want where everything's right. Davidic covenant's important. Okay, we better keep going. 23 says, Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, a deliverer, a king, a sovereign, Jesus as he promised. Well, what's promised in the Davidic covenant? It, it had to ultimately be Jesus. Before his coming, the coming of Jesus, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And they wouldn't have needed that if they were already fine and good without a perfect righteousness from the outside. So they're called to repent. They're not ready in and of themselves. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? Or who do you, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. I'm not the Messiah. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Matthew 11, 11 would have us to know that John the Baptist was the greatest old covenant prophet ever because he announces the coming of the Messiah. But you know what? He himself said, I'm not him. It's somebody else. And isn't it interesting ever so quickly that Jesus says, baptize me, John. It's a baptism of repentance. No one, or put it another way, Jesus didn't need to repent. Jesus, Jesus didn't need, no, it's no wonder. Let me put it this way. It's no wonder John says, I'm not baptizing you. You're the Holy One of Israel. Jesus didn't need a baptism for repentance. But actually he did if he's our substitute. And he's going to so identify with the human race, though he himself had no sin and only perfect righteousness in our place as our substitute, he says, we are going to do this and we're going to do this to fulfill all righteousness because I'm the substitute. It's great. Now, Paul Paul doesn't bring it up here because I think it would have just blew their minds. 
But I'm going to bring it up here because I want your mind to be blown by the whole thing. 26 is brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. Do you see? Do you see how great this is? In our day, while we've been living, we've had the incarnation, and we've had the life and suffering and death and resurrection and ascension of the ultimate David. Do you see? This is extraordinary. And if you have any sense about you whatsoever, you say you believe the Bible is true. You're going to join us. You're going to join us. God is so gracious to the undeserving so as to give us Jesus. And now he's going to say, now let me further explain, because sometimes we learn better by seeing other people's faults. I'm that person. You probably are too. You know, it's, it's hard to see my own shortcomings and my own faults. But boy, I can see them in the lives of somebody else. So now Paul says, let me tell you about the leaders of Israel and what they did to Jesus. You can see how crazy, backward, perverse, outlandish, horrific, and sinful it was. It says for those, verse 27, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets... They had the Bible memorized and they boasted about it, but they were dimwits, which are read every Sabbath, right? Of all people, fulfilled them. What? By condemning him. What a perverse oddity. Because he was going to be betrayed. Because he was going to be executed. But you don't want to be those actors in that drama. But they were, 28 then says, and though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. How crazy and perverse is that? 29 says, and when they had carried out all that was written of him, interesting, sovereignty of God, but human culpability, both at the same time, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. How about 30, two best words in the whole Bible, typically, but God, contrary to them, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. So this is a reality. It's history, as we like to say. 32 says, and we bring you the good news. We bring you the gospel news, the word of God news, that what God promised to the fathers, so it's not novel, but it is extraordinary. What God promised to the fathers, 33 says, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So Paul's preaching like Peter because it's the same gospel. Remember Psalm 2, Jesus is officially, he didn't become the son at the resurrection. He's the eternal son. But at the resurrection, there's this unique, special declaration. He indeed is the son raised from the dead, the one who who fulfills the obligation. 34 says, and as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, quoting Isaiah 55, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Ah, Davidic covenant fulfilled in him, the one who can rule and reign forever because he's going to live forever because he couldn't stay dead because he is, in fact, the ultimate son. Verse 5, it's not verse 35. Therefore, 
He says also in another psalm, Psalm 1610, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. Yes, he's that one that Isaiah talks about. He's that one that the Psalms talk about. 36 says, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. So notice, David saw corruption. Jesus, in the line of David, doesn't see corruption. But whom God raised up did not see corruption. He's the ultimate David. He's the perfectly righteous one. He's not the David adulterer. He's not the David murderer. He's not the David liar. He's the one who fulfills all righteousness. The ultimate son. This is why you have to trust in him. 38 says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers. Now he's going to draw the attention back to them, not on the leaders of Israel in Jerusalem. That... Oh, can, can I just deviate for a second and make something up? Let me change the Bible for a second for effect. Don't call for my execution or anything. Therefore, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that no Christian preacher should focus on the greatness of David as an end in and of himself. No, it doesn't say that. But that's the implication. When you teach a Bible study, when you preach the Bible... When you study the Bible, David is great, absolutely needs to be great, so that you can look for a greater David, because the great David, the first one, dies. He's not great enough. He's great as a shadow, but he's not great as the substance. When we do the other, we act like unbelievers, and we act like non-Christians. There's another name for that, but I'm not going to use it. Through this man, it says, that would be Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. That assumes atonement because atonement brings forgiveness. And by him, notice, everyone who believes, everyone who believes is freed from everything. I love the double every. Everyone and everything. By him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Is the law of Moses good? Absolutely, the law of Moses is good. The law is good, period. The moral law of God is good, whether it's under the Mosaic economy or in in another form. The law is good, but the law is not good to bring you forgiveness because the law just shows you that you need forgiveness, It shows you your sin. And so here he wants to say everyone. What was the double every again? It's everyone freed from everything. I just don't think that's possible. Unless there is a perfect substitute who does all of the right things and then makes atonement, absorbs God's deserved wrath and condemnation to bring forgiveness to those he represents, then it's not just possible. For everyone who believes, all of it's for you. What the law could never do, Jesus, the fulfiller, does. I I absolutely cherish And I'm thankful for the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we could hear the words we just heard in verse 39. Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. 
Remember, boil God's standards down to loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. That just means hell for you and hell for me. And the law of Moses will show you that. And it will not provide any forgiveness in and of itself. Just judgment. But you know what? Jesus Christ, the righteous, to everyone who believes, it is the best news absolutely ever, the news that everybody needs to hear and know. I can be set free from all the things associated with my sin and misery, forgiveness of sins, freed, Okay, we better keep going. Verse 40, beware therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers. He's going to quote Habakkuk 1 that led to Babylonian invasion and captivity. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. So they say, you better be careful. This whole, I refuse to believe is unreasonable. The Christian faith is reasonable. Refusing to believe it is unreasonable and it leads to, oh, there needs to be a warning. It leads to judgment. As they went out, 42 says, the people begged, I love that, begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. Please tell us more about this. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. I love it that they're begging for more gospel. And they follow them, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord, which would be the gospel. And But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled, not with the Holy Spirit like we've been seeing. They were filled, supernaturally controlled with jealousy, supernaturally maybe in a bad way, maybe not supernaturally, but controlled nonetheless, and began to contradict what Paul had spoken, or what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. You can't get righteousness from Jesus. The only way to get righteousness is to obey the law. The only way to be right with God is to have your good outweigh your bad. Your only hope is good behavior. You'd better be good at loving God and loving neighbor. And it can be done, maybe with God's help, contradicting everything that Paul had said. You, everyone is free. If you trust in the one and only Savior. And they're contradicting that, which is what false teachers do. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. They still will preach to Jews, we will see, but the focus primarily is going to be on the Gentiles. They had already preached to Gentiles, as we have seen, but now the focus will be primarily on the Gentiles. 47 says, For so the Lord had commanded us, saying, now Isaiah 49, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Sovereign grace, this is how it's unfolding apparently. 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. That's how the gospel works. 49 says, and when the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, 
But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. More Christ-likeness. Read Luke chapter 9, verse 5. 52 says, and finally, and the disciples were filled, controlled by, not rage and anger, even though there's persecution, because they're sticking to the script, they know all who've been appointed unto eternal life will believe, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So my takeaway is, and I hope your takeaway is, preach Christ in season and out of season, regardless of the conflict, persecution, hostility, acceptance, or rejection. Let's pray, yes, let's rely on the Spirit, but let's preach the truth about Jesus because we know how the gospel works in the lives of people's, in the hearts, in people's lives and hearts. We know enough theology to not be tempted to doctor up the gospel to get better results. These are great results. And not very pleasant results. At the same time, the people can have joy because they understand how it works. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for all 52 verses. Uh, We want to learn more. We want to know more. But we're certainly thankful for the clarity of this particular chapter of the Bible that makes a difference in the life of Omaha Bible Church and makes a difference in our individual lives that we would be good ambassadors preaching the truth about Jesus so that anyone and everyone who trusts in him can be forgiven and gain Christ and all of his benefits. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. May the Lord bless you as you go. Have a wonderful day.